Look at birdsong. A lot of people have said a lot about it. Scientists say one thing, poets something else, musicians something else, naturalists something else. And all of these different human ways of learning about this phenomenon have their own weight, their own value. No one is, is reducible to the other. Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast devoted to exploring the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Lindsay Stern. And I'm Viveka Morris. When our guest, philosopher and musician David Rothenberg, was 17, he landed a summer job tracking the flight paths of birds in the Sierra Nevada mountains of California. One day, while transcribing the sweeping flight path of a hawk, he suddenly lost sight of the creature. He sat down, listening, and heard a rustle in the leaves above him. The raptor was sitting on a branch right above me, Rothenberg writes in his new book, Nightingales in Berlin, looking down at the map where I'd been tracking his movements, as if he'd figured out what I was doing, much to his displeasure. Rothenberg was suddenly inspired. He set the map aside, picked up a small penny whistle, and began to play along, joining the chorus of birdsong overhead. Thus began Rothenberg's decades-long exploration of the music of nature, a quest chronicled in the BBC documentary Why Birds Sing, based on his book of the same title. Wittgenstein had the nerve to warn us that if a lion could talk, we would not understand him, Rothenberg writes. Yet, he continues, if a lion roars, we do understand him. If a cat purrs, we understand her. And if the voice of an animal is not heard as message, but as art, interesting things start to happen. Nature is no longer an alien enigma, but instead something immediately beautiful, an exuberant opus with space for us to join in. David Rothenberg's many books exploring nature's musicality include The Thousand Mile Song, Survival of the Beautiful, and Bug Music. His work has been translated into more than 11 languages, and his 21 music albums include One Dark Night I Left My Silent House, released by ACM. Of his new book, Nightingales in Berlin, which author Carl Safina calls rich and transporting. He explores humanity's long-standing fascination with the nightingale. In its pages, writes Leanda Linhaupt, author of Mozart's Starling, quote, we find our most authentic voice, one that never rises in isolation, but in a great intertwining with nightingales, all beings, and the earth itself. David Rothenberg, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Thanks so much for inviting me and for that wonderful and eloquent introduction. So we're going to play a piece from your new CD that accompanies your book, Nightingales in Berlin. Um, it's called Sharawaji Blues. So, David, what is happening there? Where are you? Well, you're you're playing a piece deep into the midst of this project. This is like almost the end of the first year we were playing music live with Nightingales. This track actually comes from Helsinki, not Berlin, because after a few weeks in Berlin, we went to Helsinki when the Nightingales come out later, and a whole different species called the Thrush Nightingale comes out. 
And these birds, you know, in Helsinki, they have this real problem. It just doesn't get dark. It's in early June. It's light all the time. They really don't like that because they want to hide in the darkness and be invisible while they sing from one perch. And they can't do it because it's light all the time. And, and these crazy musicians and filmmakers are looking at them and they <laughs> see us and they really don't like that. And so they're, they're moving constantly, like dancing in the bushes. And this is like the last night we were doing it. And it, all the whole project seems so ridiculous by this point. Like, I can't believe we've been playing music with nightingales and oh, enough already. You know, nobody's happy. The birds were kind of to so tired. You mess up your sleep patterns being up all night doing this. And, and so it was the moment I was most fed up with the whole thing. And it's probably my favorite recording of all of them, of all the many weeks and years. This one I like the most because here you hear the clarinet totally being played the wrong way. Where I'm just sort of flicking my fingers on the keys. I'm not blowing anything. I've sort of become a nightingale with his clicks and his, and his kind of sounds, you know. It's totally away. So people always ask if my music was influenced by all this time spent with birds. And this is a clear example that... I think by this point it really has been. I'm really just playing this strange, totally alien nightingale music that when I first started doing this, I had no idea even existed. You write in your book that preceded this new book, Why Birds Sing, which came out in 2005, about how you took your clarinet to the Pittsburgh aviary and played through the glass. At that point, you were a musician, you were a philosopher, and you hadn't yet launched this project of collaborating with birds and experimenting with your own music in the natural world. And you write about how you encountered this white-crested laughing thrush and that the encounter changed your whole sense of nature and music in their relationship. Can you Tell us what surprised you about that encounter and just take us there. Yes, well, that was like in the year 2000, I think. My friend Michael Pestel, an artist and musician who's done a lot with birds and, and a lot in the aviary, he said, you've got to come play live with these birds in this aviary. And I was sort of skeptical. I thought, they don't care about us. They don't care what I'd be doing. They have enough problems stuck in this aviary, unable to get out. And so I was kind of resistant to the idea but then when I went there, we were there at 6 a.m. before the whole place opened, wandering around. And although most birds were kind of ignoring us, this one bird, this white-crested laughing thrush, instantly started engaging with the clarinet as I was playing it. We're actually going to play a piece from the CD accompanying Why Birds Sing called The White-Crested Laugh. And David, I'm not, I don't believe this records the exact encounter you're talking about, right? But is this the same species of bird? It is that exact encounter. It is that moment. We even have it on film, early year 2000 video, because Michael happened to come by. This is the exact same moment that I was talking about. Okay, great. Here we go. Here's White Crested Laugh from the album Why Birds Sing. One of the many things that's really fascinating about this, David, is that you write in your book about all of these um, improvisations and jams, as, as you call them, with, with other species, is that, of course, animals have influenced human song 
for millennia. And birds, you write, have been um, you know singing far before we had human composers or or human song, and then vice versa. There are examples in which human language and human sounds have impacted bird song. Even you know, for instance, the nightingales in Berlin, you write, sing sing more loudly now over the urban din. And, and I'm just curious. You write at one point how you think of improvising with these other animals somewhat like improvising with people who speak another language and that it's not necessarily a barrier that they're different because music in a way transcends those differences. And I was curious if you could just describe sort of what motivates you to go beyond just listening to these animals to want to actually make music with them. I think as a musician, whenever you hear something that really touches you, even if it's unfamiliar, you know, if you if you like playing, you say, I wonder if I could play that. I wonder if I, I could join in with this kind of music. Like, I always want to play music from Mali. I always want to play with these kinds of, you know, desert blues, kind of one chord, really rhythmic, overlapping, polyrhythmic bands. And, you know, there was a group like that recording up the road here in the Hudson Valley in New York. And, and they invited me to play on their album. It was really fun. And it was just like I thought it would be. I knew that all these musicians spoke different languages. Some spoke French, some spoke other languages. They couldn't even talk to each other. And they all came from Mali and they were touring the world and they're arguing through music about what to do. They're making up the songs as they go. And they don't understand the words either. So it was quite interesting to fit into that world, you know, with other people, and, you know, and, and you know, it was, it was really fun. We managed to make something that made sense. And then, you know, you can also, of course, talk to people. You can figure out how to talk to them with birds and whales and bugs, you know, if they are making music, we still can't really talk to them about the music. You just have to have this belief that it's a kind of music, and then you might be able to f- join in with it as you might join in with a foreign or alien music that is something you've never heard before. You can still find a way into it. Right. And could, could you tell us about what bird music or, or whale music and so forth is like, both the ways in which it's similar to and different than human music? And it was interesting, even in preparing to speak with you, if you Google bird song, of course, the, the Wikipedia entry for that comes up as bird vocalizations, which is to say that, you know, music isn't necessarily accepted by all as, as something that is beyond the human. But as, as you write, in, in your view, you know, bird song doesn't just sound like music, bird song and whale song is music. Um, and I'm curious if you can speak to that. Are you telling me that someone's gone on Wikipedia and when someone wrote in bird song, they took out the song and put well, in vocalization? Well, they have the birds. The, the, the page is entitled Bird Vocalizations, or oh, also known as Bird Song. But the bird song is secondary. Right. <laughs> yes. I mean, I don't think it's an accident that many human languages from all over the world, they, they, they identify certain kinds of sounds that birds make as song. Like it, it appears in many, many languages. And they even recognize a difference between a call and a song. And I think what all these humans throughout history are thinking is there's something about these repetitive, kind of more extended and kind of often beautiful phrases that people recognize are closer to music than language. What does it mean to be closer to music than language? It means like in the performance of these patterns over and over and over again, the meaning comes across in the performance, not in what it stands for. Whereas a bird call might mean, hey, watch out, a predator's coming, or hey, I'm hungry, give me some food. That's a specific meaning. The song is this little fragment of music. It has a shape and form. It has this emotional quality. It has to be performed a certain way. And we know from biology class, of course, that um, you know, birds' song is often, not always, but often sung by male birds to defend their territories and attract female birds. That's what you learn in biology class. Okay, fair enough. 
That's probably true. But if that's true, why does every bird species do this in a radically different way? Some of them can just have a single short phrase like a chickadee. Chickadee call is chickadee, chickadee dee 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 dee. But the chickadee song, doo doo, just two notes, doo doo. Okay, so that's that song. How come then a mockingbird or a nightingale has to sing for hours doing the exact same thing? The function of the song doesn't really explain the music. It just says what it's for. You can say human music is to attract mates and defend territories, and a lot has been written about that, but it doesn't say much about the music itself. To understand the music itself, you have to study its structure, you have to listen to it, spend time with it, and if you're a musician, you might want to play along with it, find a way to join in, recognize that music is so meaningful for us. But we can't even explain what human music means. What does a piece of music mean that doesn't have words? We have no idea. And yet we know that it touches us and is important in many, many ways and always has been as long as people have been alive on this planet. I was ex extremely impressed in reading your earlier book, how far ahead of your time you were, it seems, in many ways, in recognizing what's now called, in, in the wake of the ornithologist Richard Prom's recent book, The Evolution of Beauty or the Role of Aesthetic Taste in, in Evolution, um, which is something that you, as, as both combining science and art, were very interested in over a decade ago, or potentially more. And I'm curious, you write a very interesting meditation in the book about how, in considering other animals' song, like bird song or whale song, science and art are very different lenses by which to consider that. And I'm curious if, if, you, could, if you could speak about that and, and how you've worked to combine the two. Yeah, well, I would say, uh, you know, when it comes to the evolution of beauty, and Richard Prum, you know, I I knew Richard Prum in college, both when we were like going to Harvard. I think he's one year older than me. I didn't know him that well at the time, but over the years, people kept saying, this guy's interested in similar things to you. You should go talk to him. And when I started writing a book on the evolution of beauty, survival of the beautiful, it's right when he started writing about aesthetics. And so I spent a lot of time talking about this. There's a whole chapter inter interviewing him in my book. And then when he came to the survival of the beautiful conference, which was at NYU, an all-day affair. Then, uh, you know, then he met some literary agent who came up and said, "You should write a book, Prom. You should write your own book." So that's how that happened. And uh, I do know that his book, *The Evolution of Beauty*, he wanted to call it *The Horrors of Duck Sex*, which I think. <laughs> I, I think personally, I think that's a much better title. But what do I know? Yeah, because that's what he really knows about. Yeah. You certainly have gotten a different audience for that one, I think. Uh, I want, at least the movie version should be The Horrors of Duck Sex. <laughs> but so when I think about the difference between science and art, what, what comes to me most often recently is they, they have different criteria for truth. To be successful in each endeavor is very different. For example, I could play music live with a whale. It's very difficult. A lot of technology can go wrong. The hydrophone's failing, the speakers aren't working, there's too much noise in the water, the whales are moving too fast and far away. But I can do one example where the clarinet and whale together are making this interesting music. Like it just sounds really cool. You can sense that the two musicians are listening to each other. Just one example could be enough that can be successful. If I want to do, do it scientifically, I have to go do hundreds or thousands of examples of playing along with whales, analyze it, statistically study, is what I'm doing affecting what this whale is doing in any way? Is the whale changing? Am I changing? You're kind of analyzing the, the result of something that artistically could just be looked at as being beautiful. 
I mean, one of the things that the Richard Prum and, and I also would agree with is this notion that uh, the idea that nature can be beautiful and everything that evolves doesn't need to have an exact function is an important aspect of uh, evolutionary theory that's kind of been avoided since Darwin originally proposed it. He thought that evolution just produced weird, cool, beautiful stuff. That's what sexual selection was about. Extreme sexual selection leads to all night long whale songs and, and, and uh, nightingale songs and peacocks carrying these huge, crazy tails around. It's just the excess that is possible that the evolutionary process can be obsessed with the beautiful and the ornamented. It's not, according to Darwin and Richard Prum, and I, I think I would agree, it's not primarily to prove that the, the animal that can do these extended endless things is somehow fit and qualified and a good one to mate with just because he can do these crazy things. That's avoidance, once again, of the phenomenon, trying to say it's for something rather than looking at it in itself. The peacock's tail is what's interesting. The nightingale's song itself is what's interesting, not what the purpose is. What's amazing is that such excess could actually evolve in a world that people often think of as, as a paragon of efficiency and practicality and survival of the fittest. That is not what evolution is about. It's only one part of it. Mm. I was very struck in one of your books by your description of um, the impact of Roger Payne and Scott McVeigh's two whale researchers' initial recordings and album of um, Humpback Whale Songs, which came out in 1971. The album was the song of Humpback Whales. You speak about what a big impact this had nationally in changing in just moving people, as music does, to care about the whales, and was later followed by various moratoriums on commercial whaling for, for periods of time. And I want to play that whale song that you just mentioned of the particular humpback responding to your music, your clarinet. And just so everyone understands what you're doing here is your, your clarinet is perfectly dry, it's above water, but you're on a boat and you've put a, a, both a speaker and a hydrophone down into the ocean where the humpback whale is, and then he responds to you. So that's you on, on the boat with the whales. And you later did an analysis of the sonograms and so forth that showed that at least with one whale, it seemed to be changing its music in response to what you were playing. And I'm just curious, both with that whale that responded, but also with the other whales that seemingly ignored your playing, what does that feel like to be out in the ocean playing with a whale? Well, it's an amazing thing to do. Like you hear this crazy music under the water. You know, you need this special microphone to hear, and and then you when you join into it, you realize like it's a whole musical world where each whale is singing their own song, and we're not sure how much they listen to each other, how much they overlap, how much they think if they do of playing together, and you're just one more whale in the mix. I was very moved in a similar way by your song "Requiem for a Lost Frog," which was a um, a testament in many ways, an epitaph to. Um, the Rab's tree frog named Tuffy that died in 2016 at the Atlanta Zoo. And Tuffy was one of these, for anyone who doesn't know, 
quote-unquote endlings, which is the new word that's applied to the last individual of a species. And of course, most of the time, these last individuals die in the wild and we declare them extinct a few years later. But um, the last, to scientists' uh, under knowledge anyway, of this particular species of tree frog was in captivity and had been living more or less in silence and then started to call for a mate that no longer existed on this planet. And and you have a recording of that, and then you incorporated the sound into your music, mirroring it and repeating it and echo, echoing it and duplicating it, such that the song makes it sound like there's a chorus of these frogs singing around us. And I'm curious, we can play a clip from that, but I'm curious first to ask you whether in the wake of seeing how impactful Roger Payne and Scott McVeigh's album was, if in part the goal of your work is to try to inspire a wonder and appreciation for these other animals in a, in a similar way. Yes, I would like everyone to take nature more seriously and value it. I, on the other hand, I don't have any illusions that I'm, I'm saving the planet by playing music with these creatures. Like everyone else, I'm, you know, I'm fiddling while the planet burns and melts away. And like, you know, especially in, in impending climate week coming to the UN, you know, I think like almost everyone else, I feel like I'm not doing enough. What can be done? You know, it's, you know, what, what do we really do? What can be done with this situation? I don't have any answers better than anyone else, but it doesn't hurt to appreciate nature around us, listen to it and, and value what's here. And, and, and maybe this can be part of the soundtrack for our vision for a new way of life on this planet. I, I'm somewhat optimistic. Like, I do think we're going to figure something out. People are pretty resourceful. So when we're pushed to the edge, we're going to figure out what to do. There'll be a lot of suffering. Many of us will be suffering and life isn't going to be the way it is now. But I do think humanity will survive. And I hope this is a humanity that will be listening to and joining in with the music of nature in the midst of efforts. You know, you can't just uh, survive. You have to live. You know, Chief Seattle's famous speech in its various versions. At one point he said, like, you know, we start destroying all the land. That's the end of living, the beginning of survival. You don't want to survive. You want to live. You want to celebrate. And you have to do that even in moments of struggle and crisis. Hmm. Well, we're going to play that piece for listeners now. This is David Rothenberg, Requiem for a Lost Frog. haunting. Circling back uh, to your collaboration with the whale, I was struck by the fact that, as you mentioned in one of your pieces on the experience, you were risking jail time to, to do that, that under the Marine Mammal Protection Act, the act of attempting to reach out sonically to this animal could have been classified as harassment. And it, it struck me as fascinating and curious that that would be the case. And, yeah, I wonder if you, what your thoughts on that are, how, how law is thinking about our relationship with these beings. 
Yes, you know, it's illegal to play music with whales in United States waters. And so the Marine Mammal Protection Act was put into law by Richard Nixon, of all people, to protect, you know, marine mammals from all kinds of harassment by humans. And this was from the 1970s when the rise in whale consciousness appeared. And, you know, plenty of people are against the making of music with whales because, you know, you're harassing them. Who knows what you'll do to them? We have the precautionary principle. Don't mess with something you don't understand. You know, all kinds of bad stuff could happen. However, you know, I think these whales have to deal with the noise of ships. They have to deal with sonar tests, seismic exploration, explosions, all kinds of incredibly loud sounds in their day-to-day life under the sea. If someone shows up with a clarinet, plays a little music for a few minutes, I don't think that's the worst thing they have to deal with. They might actually like it. That being said, you know, uh, I'm not sure I disagree with the law. You know, maybe it should be illegal. You don't want everyone just playing whatever for whales. You know, I'll take the risk. It's good to protect animals. By, by Everyone wants to swim with whales and commune with these great higher beings. That's also against the law because, you know, you're not supposed to bother them. And yet plenty of people are swimming with whales all over the place because they just want to be there. And so I, I think the law is a good thing. But like a lot of laws, you know, you can bend the law a little bit. You could break some laws just a little bit. And, uh, you know, I, I would be proud to do some jail time for this. I, I, think <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I, would, I might defend it. I would... If, I would uh, I would uh, defend the action by saying, look, I'm doing it for a little while that I'm stopping. I'm not, I'm not continuously making noise like ships in the sea, you know, the things whales have to deal with. You know, this, 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 this is legal to constantly go under the water without stopping. To play a little music for a whale, why is that illegal? Well, you know, you could mess them up. You could mess up their whole culture, teach them a bad song, and then they could not be able to communicate. That's what some people say. They're worried about that. I'm not so worried about that. I think they're pretty tough. And they live in a world of sound. You know, the subtitle is of my book, Thousand Mile Song, is whale music in a sea of sound. It is not quiet down there. It's full of noise and and sounds and that's the world in which whales live in an acoustic world and so you know this is just some different sound for them to play along with i have noticed among birdsong scientists although um, there's a i would say the most famous scene in this not so famous book nightingales in berlin is my confrontation with the scientists in the park when they're a little bit upset about what i'm doing we were hoping, read that. Yes, we were actually <laughs> yeah, hoping yeah. you could read that for yeah. us. Yeah, then I'll read that and I'll tell you what the implications are afterwards. Okay, so you want to hear that part? Yes. You ready? This is from Nightingales in Berlin. Page 13, chapter 1 is called, This Bird is Ruined for Us. Just as, <laughs> just as I prepare to get my instrument out, we see them, our friends, the scientists. Silke Kipper and her associate Sarah Kiefer are leaders of the Free University's Nightingale Research Project. They've chosen this exact moment to do some playback experiments with this same very bird. They're not pleased to see us. What are you doing here, David? You know this is our study area. We don't want you ruining our data collection. You know, we had talked about this earlier. I know, I say with apology, but this bird is so special. We've listened to many. We keep coming back to him. How do you know? Oh, I was playing here just the other night. Playing what? Clarinet, a voice, some electronics. What kind of electronics? I heard you just now. It sounds like you have Nightingale songs on that iPad. 
Yes, I confess. We were sampling the bird and playing him back his own song. Looped, remixed, pitch changed, sliced, diced. The glow of my screen illuminates a sense of betrayal on her face. This bird is ruined for us. What do you mean? We don't care if you play clarinet or cello or sing to him. But playing him back his own song, that's a playback experiment. That's what we're trying to do. I do hope you have the proper permits for conducting experiments with a wild animal. We're just making music together with birds. You've compromised our research subject, messing with his brain, his whole sense of aesthetics. Who knows what your music has done to him? I'm a bit surprised by her anger. This isn't exactly a pristine wilderness, is it? A few hours ago, this place was flooded with Russian songs celebrating the end of World War II. Did that ruin the nightingales? These birds hear all kinds of human sounds all day, every day. Sure, but it is their own sounds they care for the most. How do you know that? Humans care most about other human sounds. That's how we talk to each other or sing together. Well, some of us like to sing with animals and have no idea whether they like it or not. I can't even tell when people like my music or not. I learn from their response as I learn from the birds. What if you're upsetting the birds? Nothing we ever do seems to make them stop singing. If you don't chart their mating success, you won't know whether you've impacted their ability to attract a mate and procreate. Well, I don't know about that with humans either, but we still spend an awful lot of time making music. So at this point, the small crowd listening in our conversation sneakers a bit. Silka sighs. You win. Look, I see you have a lot of people gathered here. You don't want to disappoint them. She turns, dejected, mumbling to herself. Ruined, ruined. Another experiment. Ruined. Oh, that was a fantastic reading. <laughs> it's even better to hear it aloud than it is to read it to oneself. Those excellent that way as well. The comment there by the scientist where she says, the birds, of course, only like their own sounds. They don't pay attention or care for human sounds. And you disagree with her reminded me of a story that you told in um, a previous book, Why Birds Sing, which is about the superb lyre bird in southeastern Australia, which was a counterexample to this exact thing that's, that, that you contest with the scientists in that passage you read. And this is a bird who you write, there was a particular individual of these, this species in the 1930s in New South Wales who a farmer who had a flute kept um, as a pet for several years. And during that time, the bird learned to imitate just one small fragment of the farmer's um, flute song. And then decades later, still in the populations of superb lyrebirds, analysis of the song shows that they have phrases that contained elements of two popular tunes from the 1930s, the Mosquito Dance and the Keel Row, and that these lyrebirds then sing these two melodies simultaneously and have passed it on through generation to generation, creating their own distinctive song out of human song. I was so stunned and moved by this example and was thinking of it as you read that passage again about about. Of course, there's so many ways, as you mentioned, the sonar with ships and the noise of shipping and so forth in which the din of human existence makes animals' lives painful and, and worse off. But there are still these moments of really beautiful, as you highlight, interaction between the two. Yes, it's not always painful. I mean, check, you know, this lyre bird was kept as a pet for eight years and then the farmer let him go. You know, they, they parted mm -hmm. ways. And then lyrebirds lived like 50 years. So the lyrebird went back into the forest. He, he had heard this farmer playing music for eight years. It's only one phrase he liked or he, or he thought was useful. So the lyrebird has a very precise sense of aesthetics. He could have imitated many other things. He just decided he liked this one phrase. And then over the generations that got passed down to one whole population of lyrebirds. And that's pretty crazy. We know lyrebirds are interested in all kinds of sounds. I've heard it said that the most popular and beloved clip of any David Attenborough program 
a, a video clip watched by millions is this one lyre bird who I have also visited, who lives in an open air zoo, the Healesville Wildlife Sanctuary in Australia near Melbourne, very easy bird to film. And this bird imitates camera clicks and uh, chainsaws. And and that's he grew up in captivity, a kind of nice captivity. He has a lot, a lot of space, but he heard all these human sounds. And lyrebirds have a very sp specific sense of aesthetics. They like noisy sounds. They, he puts the noises into his structured song. Mm. And in the case of these scientists in Berlin, I should say that, you know, this particular scientist has since left this project. And the people now studying nightingale science in Berlin are quite supportive of what I'm doing. And they're much more um, open-minded, I'd say. And, and in that sense, maybe I have had a little influence on this field that the notion of thinking these things more musical has uh, found its way into the subject matter. In, you know, in this film that I made, you know, in 2006, we were making Why Birds Sing for the BBC. The founder of Nightingale Science in Berlin, Dietmar Tott, who was just re retired then. I was at his retirement party. He refused to talk to us with our weird ideas and music. Like, you know, we were so radical and out there. Like, this is nonsense. I'm not, I'm not even, I'm not going to be in your film. I'm not talking to you people. And now, you know, 13 years later, he was so happy to talk and be in our film that we made now, Nightingales in Berlin. He was so interested in this musical connection now. He totally had a whole about face in what music might have to do with the science of what birds are doing. And I think that there has been a change in this field, more open-minded. And the fact that we're interested in why Berlin, a busy city, has got so many nightingales in the city. You know, they, 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 could, they could stay out of there. They could, a lot of birds stay out of the city. It's too noisy. They like it. They, some of them pick as territories incredibly noisy spots, like like really busy intersections, and sit on top of streetlights, trying to say this is my territory. Mm. The, the, you know, noise doesn't scare them. It's like a challenge for them or something. They're interested in sound. You know, they play around with it, just like humans sometimes play around with noisy sounds. We like them, and other times we shun them. But we, we you know, the nightingales are playing around with sound. They, they live in a world of sound, and they're not opposed to this human world where we're, we're making our noises. They fit in. Humans and nightingales together inhabit the city and, and share its sounds. And that's a, another sense that's a tiny glimmer of hope that maybe like we could all get along one way or another. It reminds me of a quote by the philosopher of science, Donna Haraway. She says, which is a bit sobering, but she says, once domination is complete, conservation becomes urgent. And I wonder, in light of that scene, I mean, on the one hand, I was curious reading it, whether you thought of it as an illustration of the tension between science and art and how they think about truth in the, in the, the distinction you were talking about earlier. Is it an expression of the Keats position where art is this singular expression of beauty? And the point of it is that if you try to replicate it, it repeats the thing out of existence, throws the baby out with the bathwater versus science, the beauty and the, the power of science stemming from its ability to repeat and to show that the same thing can sustain repetition. So do you think of that ag on with the scientists as an expression of that? Or do you think, I don't know, does it, it seemed to me like something else was going on, like this idea that Haraway's getting at of needing to create these spaces of wilderness within the Anthropocene. Well, I kind of agree with her, but I sort of don't. I mean, 
I don't think domination is ever complete. You know, humans are part of nature. We're born, we live, then we die. We are natural beings. We, we, we haven't cheated nature completely. We test it, we push it, we, we, we hurt it, but it's, it's going to win in the end. No matter, you know, we're not destroying the planet. The, the idea of Anthropocene is, is complete hubris. It's, it's, such, it's, it's so ridiculous. We're just one species with our own weird stuff. Nature is going to outlast us. We could have a few tens of thousands of years, a few hundred thousand years of human, and then poof, you know, we'll play ourselves out. Nature just goes on and on. You know, we're nothing compared to all the possibilities of nature. So I, I don't think dominant, complete domination is ever going to happen. But that being said, the moment that human civilization begins to feel comfortable and, and self-contained along the way towards this impossible domination, that's when we start thinking of wilderness saving nature. But perhaps more interesting to me is not just wilderness where there are no people, you know, where it's illegal to touch an animal, communicate with an animal, but this inter interspecies place where you have a park in Berlin at night, a bird is singing and people decide to listen. They decide to join in. Like we're all in this together. This is a much more um, appropriate and kind of exciting way to live. I, and I think Donna Haraway agrees with that for all the stuff she's talking about, uh, other animals and pets and things. You know, she, she likes the idea of animals and being together with them. She doesn't like this world where we might have complete domination. And although these scientists are mad at me, later in the book you read about Christina Roski, who's been studying quant to quantify the specific beauty of Nightingale songs and really working hard at this, using scientific statistical techniques to analyze the sense of beauty that we feel. And she's figured out some interesting things. Like, you know, we it's not that analysis destroys, kills beauty, explains it away. We can figure things out. It's really fascinating what we can figure out when we turn our scientific lens towards the attempt to understand beauty. Interesting stuff can come out of that. There's an anecdote in the book, too, about how you attended a conference in which the great scientist E.O. Wilson, who's known for his studies of insects and his humanistic perspective, gives a talk, and then you come up to him later and, and you ask him if he really thinks that nature is a machine. And then he says, oh, no, that's just for the masses. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, he said we have much better metaphors like than that, but they're too complicated for the general public. And this this whole event was like a debate between E.O. Wilson and my good friend David Abram, the fabulous nature writer and philosopher. And the thing about E.O. Wilson is he's an incredible nature writer. Like, you know, he can do it all. He just doesn't take it as seriously as his science, but he can do it. He just does it. He, he can switch. He can write these beautiful descriptions of people and places. And then he goes to, to the scientific side. Like he's a rare intelligence, you know, and, I, and I, I'm happy to have taken his freshman biology class at Harvard where I first learned about these things. And even in high school, I learned about E.O. Wilson because I won some science prize and got one of his books as a present. And so that's one of the reasons I took his class. And then I, I played all these bug songs for him over the years. He's, he's, he's likes them and he doesn't know what they are. What do you think this is? And he has no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, he's a rare kind of person that really should be, should be celebrated. And, and at least you think that a scientist just does one thing, but it's not really true. People do, uh, you know, it, it's a rare scientist, but there still are many who are very articulate about what they're doing and can also write and can also recognize the different kinds of human intelligence. That being said, I don't always agree with things E.O. Wilson has written. You know, he wrote a controversial book, Consilience, where he really said science and arts really have to get together. They shouldn't be opposed to each other. 
but he still kind of says art is a subset of science. Scientists, science is what it's really about. But these little artists and humanities people are this tiny force within us. You know, that was kind of a, a you know, kind of a bad move, I would say. But um, it's still an interesting book, and I'm not sure he would write it that way now. Twenty years later, he probably would think differently. Because I, I would always say, you know, I, I say in Why Birds Sing, I think that's where I say it the most succinctly. That, you know. Look at birdsong. A lot of people have said a lot about it. Scientists say one thing, poets something else, musicians something else, naturalists something else. And all of these different human ways of learning about this phenomenon have their own weight, their own value. No one is, is reducible to the other. We can't say scientists really know what birdsong is about and everyone else is naive and wrong. You can't say that. You know, poets actually were way ahead of scientists and musicians because they heard interesting rhythmic possibilities in these sounds long before these other fields decided to take them seriously. So that's why there's so much poetry on this topic. Because I think poetry is taking this magical incantation side of language with the rhythms and the overlaps and, and, and grabbing like natural phenomenon from that. You can hear a meaning where other people don't hear a meaning. You know, like Walt Whitman writing about the mockingbird out of the cradle endlessly rocking. It's like, doo -doo 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 -doo. he's getting something out of the rhythm of the bird. And scientists weren't looking at mockingbirds then. There was no mockingbird concertos written by human musicians. And at that time, he, he was way ahead. Poets who listened to the world in the 19th century were way ahead of these other fields. And they're usually not thought of in that way at all. Hmm. And you have actually published with scientists. There's a paper, I think it was in 2013, where you were analyzing the rhythmic silences in a, a particular bird's call. Now the species is slipping my mind. Was it the nightingale? Uh, the, ni the nightingale rhythm paper is, is I, I'm not one of the writers, but it comes out of the same project. Ah, That's the one okay. that, that Tina Roski published. You know, she, she felt like the big paper we did was so inconclusive. There was so much data that went nowhere. Every bird was so different from every other bird. We kind of proved they were individuals and did not, uh, could not be generalized about too easily, just like a lot of studies of humans. Like, you know, everyone's too different. But the, when a nightingale is going, it's not exactly even like a machine. They have this uneven evenness, like the way humans are playing, like a fast piece of music. You have to have a, an unevenness to make it alive and real. And the birds do the same thing. One of the reasons that we hear it as being musical is that it's not so machine-like. And that, I think, was a really cool thing to discover. And she, that's the kind of thing you can measure. She measured it and said, look, this is what's going on. And that brings us back to the term Sharawaji from the title of our opening piece, Sharawaji Blues. In the book, you define, I think that there's one meaning, it's a kind of elusive term and it focuses a lot of your inquiry, but one meaning of the term is the beauty of studied irregularity. Is that right? Yes. At one point, this whole book was going to be a little different. I was going to call the whole thing the Sharawaji effect, which is a mysterious, uh, you know, kind of, poorly understood with a strange history kind of aesthetic category that I first learned about from Claude Schreier, the Canadian composer, maybe 20 odd years ago. He wrote about this sense that it was a term from garden design in, in the 1700s when gardens were being argued about all across Europe. And they had this sense of Sharawaji, 
which which was thought was supposed to be a kind of Persian term for this perfect beauty that you couldn't quite define. That was just sort of found and kind of created like a lot of these nebulous aesthetic terms. And he said, let's think of that in terms of sound. What's the perfect sound, the place where, um, you know, everything kind of fits together sonically, you find out in the world. And so building on that idea, I said, yeah, that's what, you know, when you listen to the world, when you're going out there, listening to nature and maybe the human place within it, you're looking for a perfect sound like that. And that's why the subtitle of the book is is searching for the perfect sound, something you'll never find, but maybe it's always here right around us. So Sharawaji is, is uh, and it, again, it's something you look into the history, it's not clear this history is really there. Maybe it's like all, it's made up. It's one of these like impossible things. And so, but the word, I, I love the word, you know, always spelled differently, different places, Sharawaji. Well, we'll conclude with the final piece in your new album. This is Nightingale, You Are the One, from Nightingales in Berlin by David Rothenberg. This piece is just pure nightingale. There's none of me in it at all. This is, this is what it's all going to end with. The birds will win out. The nightingales every night keep singing when all human musicians always get tired before the birds. They keep going. So if they're competing with us, they're always going to win. If they're celebrating their voice in the night, they will prevail. They're going to keep singing long and late into the night after everyone else has gone home. And that's just a wonderful thing. You can hear these birds, you can hear this sound in the middle of the second biggest city in Europe. Nightingales are everywhere in springtime. There they are. This is in the Victoria Park, beautiful park in Berlin in the middle of the night. This one bird keeps singing, singing and singing. All of the rest of us have packed up and heading home. I love that ending to the album. And it reminded me of the very beginning of of Nightingales in Berlin, your new book, and the epigraph, which is a, a quote from Saadi of, it, it is not becoming that I should be silent when birds chant praises. That's right. There's so, yeah, there's so, you know, there's a lot of Persian poetry about nightingales, a lot of closeness to these birds. I had a lot of friends from Iran and Berlin who who, who uh, teaching me more about these poems by Hafez and Saadi. And, and uh, this is one I found by accident combing through like translations of Saudi online, like, you know, how can I be silent when birds chant praises? I need to join in. They are praising God. They are out there. They're celebrating life. What better thing to do than participate in this? So it is not becoming to humanity that I should be silent when birds chant praises. I loved that. Well, to close, we like to ask each of our guests for several books films or musical recordings that have influenced how you think about animals that you might recommend to listeners? Do any come to mind? I have to say my, my favorite nature film by far is Werner Herzog's Grizzly Man. Mm. Because in this film, which tells the story of Timothy Treadwell, a, a bear enthusiast who was eaten by a bear and filmed the bear, lived close with these grizzlies in Alaska. They got him. They consumed him. And the whole thing shows the very impossibility of humans saying anything about nature, making any kind of film about nature mm-hmm. by showing the whole possibility um, to be, you know, you know, 
in, you know, like it's impossible to comment on the natural world. And everyone should, everyone who's interested in, in humanity and nature should, um, should watch that. And you guys should call him up. You should interview Werner Herzog, see what he says. We would love to. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I have his phone number. I just found it on the internet. I called him up. I talked to him. Hmm, we got to get oh. on the internet more. <laughs> what did you ask Bruce, him? It, uh, I said, will you come to New York and debate your interest in nature with me? And he said, no, it's a good idea, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> well, if you Last. can loop him in, we'd love to host such a thing. Yeah, yeah, we, we can do it. You, 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 Yale can pull this off. You, you'll be able to convince him. <laughs> and now I have some more connections because I was, uh, you know, sort of telling this story, you know, about Werner Herzog at one of these readings I was doing in Berlin, talking to this woman who was there. And I said, that guy, you know, Herzog, you know, he's obsessed with nature, but he, he won't really admit it, you know. And she said, yeah, I know what you mean. He's my father. <laughs> so <laughs> there we go. Okay, the, the second book is is a, is a really amazing novel. It's another guy you just got to interview on your show. And that is Rafi Zabor, who wrote this novel called The Bear Comes Home. Not to just focus on bears here, but this is a novel. It's a novel about a bear who plays the saxophone. And it's just about a crazy jazz musician. He just happens to be a bear. You know, do you have a problem with that? It's just a bear playing the saxophone. And <laughs> it kind of analogizes the strangeness of being a jazz musician. And of course, the bear lives in Bearsville, New York, where a lot of jazz musicians have lived over the years. And it's really, if you've never heard of this book or read it, it did win the Penn Faulkner Award for fiction. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just an amazing, you know, novel that should be better known. And its author is just a real character. He's really interesting. Mm. So that book is just one should always return to. And then I also think of this book, another novel by Elizabeth Marshall Thomas called Reindeer Moon. She's famous for writing The Hidden Life of Dogs and The Tribe of Tiger, these super popular books about dogs and cats. But... Elizabeth Marshall Thomas is an amazing woman who studied nature very closely. The thing about Reindeer Moon is it's about prehistoric people and they, they kind of become animals. They go back and forth between human and animal ways of being. And she describes it in a very realistic way. So it's just kind of a matter of fact. And I remember when I met Elizabeth Marshall Thomas, who lives around nearby, you can talk to her. Uh, you know, maybe when I was in grad school, like in the, in the 80s, late 80s, and, and she said, oh, you're studying philosophy. It's so pointless. You know, it's just, just a bunch of old men claiming they know everything. You know? And I was very happy to give a talk, you know, uh, last year where Elizabeth Marshall Thomas was also speaking. And I could, it's, I could bring up that remark and say, I, I pretty much agree with her. But, you know, it wasn't the worst thing to study. And then she laughed. She's in her late 80s now and said, yeah, yeah, that is the kind of thing I would have said 30 years ago. <laughs> so I'd never say it now, she said. So, you know, but I'm, I'm constantly looking for more things. And there's really so many amazing things to listen to and to um, read. You know, I'm not talking about musical influences here. That can be a whole other conversation. But you can read these books I've written. I talk about music that influenced me, different people. And I think it's important to, you know, if you're interested in someone's work, go, go talk to them. Go find them. And, and, you know, people actually are surprised mostly if you're interested in what they're doing. Most people you know, don't get enough serious attention, even if they're famous and people aren't really paying that close attention to them. So if you do, you know, it's usually appreciated by those that whose work you admire. 
Well, David Rothenberg, thank you so very much for joining us. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's a great show you've got. Thank you, too, to Ryan McAvoy at the Yale Broadcast Studio, the Law, Ethics, and Animals program at Yale Law School, and the Yale Human Nature Lab for making this episode possible. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts, write us a review, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about David Rothenberg's work. His new book is Nightingales in Berlin. Thanks for listening.